All right, I didn't want to say good morning as I was carrying that. I didn't want to like strain. Good morning as I was talking to you guys. It's deceivingly heavier, or I'm just weaker than most people that bring it out. Um, welcome. My name is Mitch Fierro. I'm one of the shepherds here. And so if we haven't met, hello, good morning. I'm glad you're here. And if you are new, uh, if you're a visitor, you're a guest, somebody invited you, uh, we actually have a gift that we'd like to give to you and put into your hand. So uh, if you're new, we have some ushers that are coming forward. Just kind of get their attention. Uh, you know, you can give them one of these things or, you know, flick of the ear, whatever it is. They are looking for you. They would love to put this gift in your hand. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, I think it's one of our Mark journals, and it's a, um, a card for a free cup of coffee. And just so you know, I take coffee very seriously. Uh, and so we are not giving you a poor cup of coffee. Uh, you can grab a great cup from the well. And so um, please enjoy that uh, as, as a new person. And um, yeah. So like I said, my name is Mitch Fierro. I'm one of the shepherds here. And as you heard Molly just read, uh, we're, we're looking at a large portion of Scripture. Now, numerically, it's not that large of a portion. I mean, it's only about 20 or so verses. But within uh, those 20 or so verses, we, we see a lot of uh, dense, dense, theologically dense topics, right? I mean, we, we see Jesus performing miracles. We see demonic possession. We see healing. We see leprosy. We see Jesus getting away to pray early in the morning and his disciples looking for him. Uh, not to mention, Jesus begins to mention preaching and the kingdom of God here. Um, and we also see Jesus do this weird thing where he starts to heal people. And after he heals them, he tells them to not say anything about him, which feels really counterintuitive to the gospel, right? Like you would think he would want them to start to talk about him, to, to bring the gospel uh, to people in their circles. But Jesus actually instructs them to do, do, the, diff- to do the opposite. And really any of those uh, could be, could be a, a sermon in themselves. But like Darren shared, uh, we're, we're, there are going to be times in this Gospel of Mark series where we're going to have larger uh, or, or dense portions of Scripture. And this is going to be an opportunity for you to kind of chase down the Scripture uh, and to be a student of the Bible um, on your own. So what I see and what I kind of discovered in my time in the text this week is, is I'm, I'm actually pretty excited to talk about. And, and I feel that this is the thing that the Holy Spirit has put on my heart to share with you guys this morning. You see, I, I, we see Jesus, I, I, I'm kind of calling them, we see these movements of Jesus, right? We see Jesus move to interact with um, particular people, the demon-possessed man. We see him interact with people who are sick. Um, we see him interact with Simon, I keep want to call him Peter, Simon's mother-in-law, and we see Jesus move to interact with, um, with this leper. And in each of those movements, there, there is one similarity, and that is this, that in each of those movements, in each of those interactions, we see Jesus exercise his authority and his power. We see Jesus' power and authority put on display in each of these movements, We see his power over the demonic. We see his power over the physical needs of this world. And lastly, we see Jesus' power to restore. And it's worth noting that these aren't the only only areas in which Jesus um, puts his power on display. Rather, throughout the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark, without the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus do that in multiple different ways with with multiple different people. Uh, But these are just what we see in this portion of the text. So I'm not saying this is the only way Jesus moves and the only way Jesus puts his power and authority on display. This is just what we see in this portion of the text. 
And like I said, Darren said we're going we're gonna to be looking at larger portions. And so he said he's going to be giving you guys homework in the new year. Um, I'm, he's not here. I'm going I'm to give you guys homework now. Uh, so you can look at any of those things that I mentioned before, whether that be uh, Jesus getting away to pray, the, the miracles, demon possession, any of those things that I talked about that maybe you don't hear me touch on this morning, you have permission to kind of start to chase some of those things now. I think in the age of information that we find ourselves in, I think there are, um, there are phenomenal podcasts and teachings, uh, commentary libraries available online, Bible software, that, that any of us can, can step into being a student uh, of the word. To kind of plug this thing, they don't pay me to do this, but I just got an email from the Gospel Coalition this week and that, that they actually uh, have, have released the, the largest free biblical commentary for free. They recognize that, that pastors in developing world or developing areas of the world, uh, they just don't have the resources, the academic resources that you and I have here in the West. And so they've, they've made all of these resources available for free for, for, peach, for preachers and teachers all over the globe. And those, those very resources are also made available uh, to us here in the West. And so take advantage of that. It's on their, their website. Again, they're not paying me to say that. I just thought it was a really cool tool um, for both pastors all over the globe and for us here at this church. So. Getting back to what we're actually talking about this morning, we're talking about Jesus putting his power and his authority on display, again, in the demonic, over the physical needs, and lastly, his ability to restore. And so let's look at the text, beginning in verse 21. If you have your your Mark journal, you can go ahead and turn there. And it says in verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, very similar to our time today, in Jesus' time, um, there were no shortage of of gurus, of specialists, of experts. There were even other people proclaiming to be the Messiah around the same time Jesus was around. And so it wasn't uncommon for Jesus' observers, for Jesus' hearers, um, to to be kind of accustomed to hearing people speak with some type of authority. But what was unique to Jesus is that they had never seen or heard anyone speak with the type of authority that Jesus had. Not even the religious leaders of Jesus' time heard anyone speak with such authority. And we'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark that it is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that had the greatest issue with Jesus' teaching and the authority that he came in and the authority that he possessed and he put on display. And the reason for this is that Jesus's, Jesus's authority challenged their own authority. See, the religious leaders of Jesus's time existed to point people to God. The religious leaders of his time existed to help people live in harmony with the one who created all things. And so in that, in that, that job and in that duty of religious leader, they were experts of the law. They were experts of the rules and the traditions that, we, that we, we, we read about in the Old Testament. And it was those traditions that they exercised or helped people live within that, that it was that that allowed uh, common everyday folk like us come into, enter into the presence of God through the temple. And with that role of being a religious leader came platform, came prestige, uh, came, came privilege. And then instead of seeing Jesus as one to partner with, one to come alongside the work that they were doing, seeing him as really the fulfillment of the very work that they were doing, they were were threatened by him. They were threatened by Jesus, fearing that he was going to steal people away from them, or even potentially if Jesus 
truly was who he says he was, he would make them obsolete. The authority that the religious leaders had made sure that they were in the spotlight. It made sure that they were essential, that they were necessary. And over time, their duty became less about pointing people to God, became less about pointing people to the creator of all things, but pointing people to themselves. Pointing people to them, why they were necessary, why they were important, why they were valuable. And Jesus' authority was, well, well, different. You see, Jesus' authority came with humility. In Jesus' authority, we constantly see him laying down his own time, laying down his agenda, laying down his own preferences for the sake of others, for the sake of people that he would come, come across on the side of the road. We also see Jesus' authority come in service. Jesus wasn't trying to build a brand or make a name for himself, but rather Jesus came in service to other people. Lastly, Jesus' authority came with a mission. Jesus' authority and his mission was not only to draw people back to himself, but to point people, and as we'll see, restore them to relationship with the Father. Now, as we talk about authority, it, it, this, this can be a difficult conversation. Perhaps there are people in this room that have been victimized by somebody else's power and authority, or maybe you've, you've experienced the abuse of power and authority in some way. And if you haven't done that, I think it's just human nature for us to, to not, to kind of push back, to not easily receive the authority of, and power of somebody else in our own life. And I'm a father of four kids, and I, I feel like I see this in my kids daily. Uh, in preparation, I'm, I'm reminded of one of the times, I, I think it's the time I took my son Henry to the movie theater. He had to have been like three or four. Um, it was his first time at the movie theater. And so as we're going in, I grab one of those booster seats to put on, put on the chair, right? It's because he's, he's a little guy. He needs to be able to sit o- see over the seat in front of him. Um, but also, a three or four-year-old isn't quite heavy enough to hold one of those seats down. And so when you put a little kid on that seat, they're like immediately like beat up, like kind of falling through the crack. And so I put him on that and immediately he starts to cry. Like he starts throwing like a bloody murder fit like in the middle of the movie theater. And so like most parents in the room, we want, we want, what do we want to do? We want to shut our kid up. So I, I, pull, I pull the booster seat out and immediately he stops crying. You see, he, he wanted it his way. He wanted to push it back against what I knew what was best for him, what I knew would be beneficial for him, for what I knew would be helpful for him. And that's just ingrained into us as, as human beings. I, I don't think that there... I don't think this sense that you and I might feel that we know what's best for ourselves, right? That, that's what my son felt. And he knew what was best for him in that moment. And it was not seeing the movie that I paid for him to see. <laughs> but I don't think that that feeling ever goes away. I was, uh, I, 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 me and some of the care team got away this week just for some, some Sabbath and sabbatical over at the, the Huntington Library. And on the drive out there, Bambi and I are talking about just my childhood and I forget how we got on this topic, but I start sharing with her that, you know, in, when I was a kid, that I found community, I found identity in kind of these, um, I want to say anti-authoritarian, that sounds so like anarchist, like, like anti-authority kind of subcultures, right? Like, like I'm a product of punk rock culture, I'm a product of skateboard culture, graffiti culture, hip-hop culture. These were all attractive to me because in those cultures, it allowed me to say that I think my way is better. 
My way is better than what I, what I believe the teachers think for me. My, I believe my way is better than what my parents think for me. My way is better than what law enforcement thinks for me. And each of those cultures allowed me to kind of live in that space. And maybe you, you weren't as extreme as me, uh, uh, but, but I'm pretty confident that, that all of us have felt this way or in a lot of ways probably still do feel this way today. And in today's culture, to be anti-authority isn't as obvious as a pink mohawk, a skateboard, and a can of spray paint, but rather it's, it's a little more subdued, it's a little more nuanced, right? We, we, we find uh, our alignment in anti-authority or against authority in, in our algorithms, right? Our social media feeds. We, we, we submit ourselves to the influencers of our lives, the influencers of our feeds, and we allow their teachings to rule and reign over us. But I, but I want to clarify something before, before we move on, that aligning ourselves with someone that looks like us, thinks like us, has the same values in us, um, does all the things that we do, has the same convictions as us, when we align ourselves with them, um, it's not the same as submitting to authority. Right? Because if this influencer, this person we are willingly submitting ourselves to, again, looks, thinks, shops, acts, has the same values as us, are us, then essentially we're, we're, we're submitting to our own authority still. And to truly be submitted, to truly sit under someone else's authority, authority or power, it means that we have to recognize that that person's way, that that way of living is potentially better than my way. And it's not always hard, it's not always easy to live that way. It can be hard, but that is true submission to authority. And as we see in the life of Jesus, the very authority that Jesus displays, the very power that he reveals to his onlookers that they marvel at, that authority only comes to him because of his submission to the Father. His submission to the Father's authority. And like I said, it's hard. It's, it's hard for Jesus too. We see throughout scripture, Jesus begging for the Father to let this cup pass for him, for there to be another way. As he hung on the cross, crying out to the Father that he feels forsaken him. Jesus recognizes the difficulty, the hardness of submitting to somebody else's authority, but also recognizing that, that authority, that way is so much better than my own. So pivoting now, let's look at the authority and the power that Jesus has over the demonic. I feel like we're just talking about uncomfortable things this morning because I feel like having this conversation around the demonic, um, it, it's kind of a, an awkward conversation, right? I mean, to talk about evil spirits, uh, especially around Halloween time, it, it might feel silly. Um, but I, I want to ask you to enter into maybe having a, a semi-logical or having a logical conversation about Satan having a logical conversation about the demon, about his demons, and how they're actively working against the gospel, how they're actively working against the kingdom of God. And so just work through the weirdness, work through the silliness. And, and I think the reason that, that this feels weird or this might feel silly to us is because, well, in many, in many ways we feel in the West specifically that, that we're, we're enlightened, right? That we've kind of moved on past this, this hyper-spirituality uh, 
You know, we live in a time where, where more people than ever have college degrees. Again, like I said earlier, we have access to more information that has ever existed in mankind. So to have a conversation around something that exists outside of our realm of understanding, to have a conversation about something that exists outside of our realm of understanding um, feels, feels a little bit uncomfortable. But as I talk about, as I talk to missionaries all over the globe, missionaries that we partner with, missionaries that we co-labor with, it's, it's actually really common to hear other folk um, casually speak of Satan and the demonic. Now, not in ways that, that feel flippant, um, but rather they, in other developing countries and developing parts of the world, um, there, there's a, a simple recognition of the opposing forces of the gospel. Now, I'm not going to stand here and, and act like I'm an expert in this field of study. I think this is just as uncomfortable for me to even spend time in this in preparation to talk to you about it. Uh, but, but I have to believe, I have to choose to believe with every bone in my body that there are, thinking, there are things working outside of our realm. There are things that I don't fully understand. And I have to believe that there are angels actively working and moving in the world around me. And in opposition to those angels, there are influences by the enemy, there are influences by Satan and his demons. And even though, personally, I haven't seen, I haven't experienced what I would consider to be logical evidence of the demonic, I have to believe this is true. I have to take it serious. Not just because the rest of the developing world is taking it serious, but because Scripture talks about it. Jesus talks about it a lot. Jesus warns us about these opposing forces a lot. Not just in the gospel, but Paul even carries that into the the, the New Testament and his writings. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes that he writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And again, I'm not not having this conversation with us to to freak you out or to give you the heebie-jeebies. This isn't a spooky Halloween talk, but rather this is just us recognizing that these forces do exist. These forces exist. They move in the world around us. Now, I'm not saying that everything that happens that is contrary to the kingdom of God is the enemy. And I'm also not saying that we need to completely disregard the fact that the enemy is moving and working against the kingdom of God. But what I think we have to recognize is that, one, that the enemy simply does exist. And he's actively moving. And when we recognize that, when we recognize his existence, Christ reveals to us here, Christ puts on display here in this interaction with the leper, I'm sorry, this interaction with the demon-possessed man that we're going to look at, that he has power and he has authority over those forces working against the church, working against his spirit. So if you have your Mark journal, let's, let's look briefly at verses 23 through 27 of chapter 1. It says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. 
And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And again, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey. Friends, as Messiah, as the sent one from God, Jesus has full authority over the opposing forces of this world. Jesus has authority over the demonic. Now in this next section, we see Jesus exercise his power and authority over the physical needs of this world. I'm going to briefly summarize this for time, but in verses 29 through 31, we see Jesus enter into um, Simon and Andrew's house. And when they enter in, it says that Simon is informed that his mother-in-law is sick with a fever. And so Simon takes this news to Jesus. Uh, Moved by this, this woman's sickness, Jesus goes to her, touches her, and heals her of this fever. And eventually the word gets out and it kind of spreads throughout the city and it says that that all of the city came, all of the sick and all of the demon-possessed came to receive the healing, to receive the power that only Jesus can have or had. If the last section revealed that Jesus cared about our spiritual needs, this section reveals that he deeply and equally cares about our physical needs. This reveals that Jesus doesn't only care about the spiritual realm, but he cares about our souls in the earthly realm. He doesn't just care about eternity. He doesn't just care about us spending eternity with him in heaven, but he cares about life this side of eternity. He equally cares about the now. He equally cares about the present. And without getting too deep into a kingdom conversation, um, the kingdom of God is going to be mentioned multiple times throughout the Gospel of Mark. And so I'm confident at some point there will be another teacher that can probably do it better than I that is going to address the kingdom of God. And so be, be waiting for that. But without getting too deep into a kingdom conversation or kingdom theology, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the coming kingdom that he's bringing. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing, the kingdom that Jesus is ushering us into is one, yes, for all of eternity, that we might spend eternity with him in the new heaven, on the new earth, but also as followers of Jesus, as his disciples today, in this place, in our lives, in Fullerton, where we work, where we live, in our circles, we can begin today to experience the kingdom of God. And in this next section, the next section, we're going to see Jesus moved to pity, to compassion because of the leper. See, we see Jesus move with compassion throughout all of the Gospels. In John chapter 6, when Jesus talks about the feeding of the 5,000, it says that Jesus is moved with compassion. Jesus is moved because he sees their physical need. He sees people that were hungry He sees people without a shepherd and he is moved towards them in that compassion. And he doesn't just recognize the need and then move on and say, pray about it, I'll see you in heaven. No, Jesus moves in that moment to meet their physical need, to feed those who are hungry. In Matthew 25, it says that when the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer Jesus, saying, Lord, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I think it's pretty clear that Jesus cares about the condition of this world. Now, again, I feel some uneasiness. I feel some uncomfortability coming with the the next part of this conversation. You're probably starting to think to yourself, oh, great, here comes the local missions guy. Here comes the missions pastor. He's going to talk about uh, a a social gospel. He's going to talk about a justice gospel. No, I'm not here to talk about a gospel outside of the only gospel I know to exist. And the only gospel I know is a gospel where Jesus himself declares the greatest command as loving the, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. And likewise, that word likewise means equally loving our neighbor as ourself. And I think it's, I think scripture shows us that Jesus has compassion. Jesus has compassion on the physical needs and ailments in the, in the world that we occupy. He has compassion on hunger. He has compassion on finances, compassion on relationships over and over and over again. Jesus is moved towards people. Jesus is moved towards the lost. He is moved towards the broken in his compassion. And I think this is uncomfortable for us to talk about because I think for far too long we've allowed our, our, our preferences, our political party lines, our, our comforts to inform who we think, who we believe Jesus actually cares about. But when I look at the gospel and I see how Jesus is moved, how he is moved by the demon-possessed man toward him, how he is moved by the health of Peter or Simon's mother-in-law toward her, how we will see eventually that Jesus is moved towards the woman at the well, and we'll see this morning that Jesus is moved towards the leper, Jesus moves towards all of them with compassion because he cares about their current situation. And I have to believe that if Jesus cared about the current situations of his world that he occupied, that Jesus still cares about the injustices that take place in our world. Jesus cares about Israel. Jesus cares about Palestine. I have to believe that Jesus cares about the experiences of our black, black, brown, indigenous, and Asian brothers and sisters. I believe Jesus cares about the homeless in our community. He cares about their mental health. He cares about their hunger and he cares about their lack of shelter. Jesus cares about the physical health of those who are experiencing cancer and other diseases. He cares about the iniquity and he cares about the poverty in our community. He cares about the disabled. He cares about the refugee, the migrant, the immigrant, and Jesus equally cares about the unborn. Now, I think this is hard. This is a hard conversation for us to enter into, into because, like I said, far too long we've submitted ourselves to the powers and authorities and the influences of this world who have cautioned us, who have instructed us contrary to the teaching of Jesus. Now, I'm not telling you that I have a solution for any one of these issues. I'm not even saying that our church has a solution for any one of these issues. I'm not saying that the practices that are taking place around these issues is, are, are right. I'm not saying that, that they're wrong. What I am simply saying is that Jesus cares. Jesus cares about these people because they're not issues. These are people that we are talking about. These are image bearers that bear the very same imago Dei, the very, the very same image of God that you and I bear in this room this morning. And if Jesus cares about these things, 
if he cares about these people that we've just mentioned, these issues, that if you call yourself a brother, if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, of an apprentice of his way, you and I, we need to learn to talk about these things. We need to learn uh, and recognize that it's not going to be easy. But, these, but addressing these injustices in our world absolutely have to take place. Conversations might not even exist. Words might not even exist. There probably aren't even starting points for some of these things, but we have to move towards them because not that I care about these things, but because Jesus cares. And friends, if we are ever going to experience the fullness of God's kingdom on this earth, if we're actually going to say that we desire to see the kingdom of God in Fullerton as it is in heaven, we have to learn to move towards these people and begin as brothers and sisters to talk about these issues. And lastly, Jesus has the ability, has the power to restore. Now, this is the one I'm actually most excited to talk about. We see in verses 40 through 45, I'm, I'm gonna read there. It says, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean and Jesus sternly charged him, excuse me, to say nothing to anyone, but to go and show yourself to the priests and offer yourself or offer a, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went, the, the guy that used to be a leper, he went and began to talk freely about it and he began to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter into a town but was always in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So what we see in, in those, those last part uh, of those verses is kind of what I, I teed up that, that Jesus does this weird thing where he heals this guy and he says, don't, but don't, don't talk about it. Like, let's keep this between, between you and I. And, you know, just to show you guys, I did my homework. Uh, there actually are different schools of thought on why Jesus did that. One of them is that, um, that a, lot of, a lot of scholars believe that Jesus was in some ways kind of being his own PR guy, right? Like he was controlling his message. That this is early on in the Jesus of preaching of the kingdom, the preaching of his own gospel. And so uh, since it was so early, he just wanted to make sure the things that were being communicated and what was being said about him, what was said about the kingdom was, was accurate. And that, that makes total sense. Uh, another school of thought was that Jesus came for, um, he came for the Israelites first, right? He came for Israel first. And by sending this, this man who was once um, diagnosed as a leper to the temple to do the, the, the rituals, to go through the process of making himself clean and presentable to the community that he was once excommunicated from, means that the, he was essentially taking the gospel to the religious leaders of his time. And if the religious leaders were going to, in that moment or in that process, declare this man who was once a leper to be clean again, then they would have to recognize that only God can make a leper clean again. And so if Jesus is the one that made this leper clean, then they would have to recognize that Jesus was also fully God. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, many scholars believe that Jesus sent him to them. But again, that's your homework to figure out. I teed you up. You guys can kind of jump off of those things. Um, happy hunting. It's out there on the internet. Um, and yeah, let's talk about it at some point. I also want to say this. I'm going to go on a little bit of tangent about the internet or just resources. Um, you know, as, as we're talking about Mark, 
And, and you're like, where do they get this information from? Like, where do we study from? Uh, we would love to have those conversations with you. And so like, as, as we have people come forward to pray, um, come forward with those questions. Like, where, do you, where are you reading? What are you reading? What resources are you using? Especially as we enter into a season of kind of chasing down some of this stuff in Mark on our, on our own. Okay, that being said, um, what I want to focus on here now, what I want to end our time on is that Jesus has the ability has the ability, Jesus has the power to restore. Now, compared to the demonic, compared to the needs of this world, you you might be asking yourself, why is Jesus' power to restore significant? Well, I think to truly understand the power in this this interaction, why why restoration is so important, I think we we have to understand the life of, of a first century leper. So in, in Jesus' time, uh, if somebody was diagnosed with leprosy, um, first of all, it, it wasn't probably the type of leprosy that, that you and I think about. Um, it wasn't necessarily the, the deformity, of the physical deformity or the loss of limbs or the death of the nervous system, but rather leprosy in the first century could have been anything um, on the surface of the skin. So like a, a bad rash, warts, acne, staph infection, psoriasis, alopecia, like all of these things could be diagnosed by the high priest as, as leprosy. I also find it interesting that a medical professional didn't make this diagnosis, but it was the religious authorities that made this diagnosis. And with a diagnosis, uh, it was often referred to as death. Because with a diagnosis of leprosy, it meant excommunication and meant that the one that was now deemed a leper was forced to live outside of the community that they were once a part of. It meant that they were destined to a life of loneliness and solitude. The leper was forced to wear unclean and tattered clothes. They were forced to have disheveled hair. They had to physically and audibly cry, unclean, 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 wherever they went to announce their presence. One has to imagine the embarrassment, the depression, the anxiety, the helplessness, the hopelessness that a leper must have felt. Not to mention the shame, the loss of dignity, the practical loss of vocation, calling, purpose. This lifestyle of isolation was also not only to protect the leper's community's physical health, but it was also a common thought that those who had a diagnosis of leprosy, they, they, they had that diagnosis, they had that, that, that element because there was some type of sin in their life. And to the religious leaders, ignored, unidentified, unrepentant sin had no business in the community. So that was another factor, another layer to the excommunication. Now, if you're invited here this morning, you're a guest um, somebody got you to come. Maybe you're, you're having this conversation in your, in your mind and in your heart about what, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And you hear the term sin, and you, you want to know, like, what exactly are, are Christians talking about when they, when they talk about sin? And so I'm going to lay it out briefly. Sin is this. The word sin simply means to miss the mark. It means that God has a preferred way for us, his creation, to live. And when we willingly choose to live outside of his way, when we choose to live outside of his will, that, that, that is missing the mark. That is sin. 
And this isn't a new concept from evangelicals to separate us versus them, but rather this, this, this sin goes all the way back to the creation account. It goes all the way back to the first two chapters of Genesis. And there we'll, we'll, we'll briefly summarize it there. In the first two chapters, it says uh, God creates the heavens and God creates the earth. And on the earth, there's, there's a garden. And in that garden, his creation, Adam and Eve live. And he puts them there to live. And in that garden, everything is provided for them. They were naked and unashamed. They were provided for. They had relationship with God. They had work to do. They had vocation. They had purpose. They had relationship. The Old Te- or Genesis talks about Adam and Eve walking with God, conversing with the creator of all things. And in that very same garden, Adam and Eve are deceived by the enemy. And in their deception, sin enters the world. And in that sin, there was a separation, a separation from Adam and Eve that pushed them out of the community, that excommunicated Adam and Eve from the community that they were once a part of. Pushed out, they now felt shame. They experienced loss, the loss of vocation, the loss of purpose, the loss of relationship, loss of everything that they had in the garden, the community that they were once, they were once a part of. But this is where we see Jesus' power. It says, unfazed by the leper's diagnosis, returning back to Mark. Unfazed, unbothered by the potential sin in the life of this, of this leopard. Not fearful of his physical ailment or his diagnosis. Jesus doesn't move away from the leper, but rather it says that Jesus is moved in compassion. Some of your translations say moved in pity. Jesus is moved towards him. And Jesus' physical aligns with his emotional, right? Because Jesus is compelled emotionally towards him. We also see Jesus extend his hand physically towards the leper. And when Jesus approaches him, he doesn't push him back. He doesn't remind him that he doesn't have a place in the community. He doesn't remind him that he needs to get out, that he needs, there's no, uh, he's not welcome there, that he is dirty, that he is unclean. But rather, when Jesus approaches him, it says that he's moved with pity. And when he touches him, When he extends his hand, he heals this man of his leprosy. But Jesus' restoration doesn't just end there. See, remember we talked about Jesus cares about the issues of this world and the spiritual, right? And well, since the garden and since the Adam and Eve, humanity has longed to be restored to to their creator. And that restoration finally came to earth through the person of Jesus. And only he has the ability to restore not just the issues of this world, not just this man's physical leprosy, his physical ailment, but he restores us to relationship to the one that created all things. And we can begin to experience eternity now. We can begin to experience the kingdom now with the promise that we will spend eternity with our Father. I wonder how many of us have self-diagnosed ourselves as lepers. How many of us have self-diagnosed ourselves as sinners? We think to ourselves, we're just too messed up. We're unclean. We have no business to ever experience a community like this that you're sitting in this morning. 
let alone a church like this, but to experience a relationship with the creator of all things, experience a relationship with the creator of the universe. Or maybe like the lepers, you've been diagnosed. Maybe a religious leader, somebody of your time, somebody at some point in your life has, has labeled you a sinner, has told you that you have no business in this place and that you are too broken, you are too dirty, and you are unworthy of being fixed. And God has, you are a lost cause to God. And in that, you feel the loneliness and the shame and the depression that Adam and Eve felt in their excommunication from the garden. If that's you this morning, I simply want to say to you that, like the leper, like the story that we just saw, Jesus sees you. Jesus has compassion on you. Jesus knows the areas in your life in which you are broken. Jesus knows the sin and Jesus still moved towards you. And he doesn't just move towards you in compassion and emotion, but Jesus extends his hands to you. And all you have to do in this moment is say, like the leper, I believe you can make me clean. I believe you can make me clean. And in simply asking him to restore you again, you can begin to experience the community. You can begin to experience the relationship. You can begin to experience the kingdom of God that you and I were created to experience. But all of that, the kingdom of God, the peace, the joy, the restoration that comes with that only comes with the life submitted to Jesus and his power and his authority. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we recognize that, that your ways are not ours. We recognize the difficulty in even sometimes recognizing our areas of brokenness and the sin in our lives. But you faithfully remind us that you are so much bigger than any of those things that in the midst of whatever we find ourselves in, you are actively reaching out. You are actively moved towards compassion towards us. So Holy Spirit, I invite you to move in our lives this morning, to move in the life of this church, that we might recognize our own areas. If it's not for the first time, maybe it's a reminder that we need to experience your restorative power, the restorative movement of your gospel in our lives. So Jesus, we invite you to move. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move this morning. Draw us to yourself. Convict us of our sin, not for our glory, but for yours. And it's in your very name that we pray. Amen.